Chris sometimes talks when it's not time to talk. Chris doesn't stop moving even when he's sitting down. Maybe you are that person too. Jesus loves you anyways, just like he loves me. All right, we got a few more trickling in from the back. So again, we're going to be in Isaiah 55. Um, I don't have a presentation tool up here. Ho, ho, ho. How did I miss that earlier? Uh, Ardith, is there an extra presentation tool back there floating around? It's like the long, thin thing with the buttons that click. Looks like me with a laser on its head. Nothing? All right. Well, we'll just communicate this way. It'll work out, and, and it'll be just fine. So um, we're in the midst of this sermon series. I'm glad you asked. Kelly's coming up to help me. Ooh, maybe we should look in the bag. It's like hide-and-go-seek. Nope, not in here. All right. So we're in the midst of this sermon series called I'm Glad You Asked, and uh, I am glad that you asked. This is actually our last week of this sermon series, which means next week we're starting a new sermon series. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I'm hoping that we can do this periodically, either a sermon series like this every 18 months or so, or maybe if you guys write good questions on communication cards, maybe I'll just do this like once a quarter where we'll answer a question. Wouldn't that be, that would be great? Uh, it's been a really fruitful sermon series, so thank you for those of you who turned questions in. And remember that this is not just about um, you hearing and getting more information, because what happens when we get more knowledge without love? We get all puffy. We get spiritually and intellectually bloated. And uh, the funny thing is, is usually when we feel bloated, we feel bad, but the result is it's actually bad for the people around us, right? That's how being bloated works. All that gas has to go somewhere. And so we don't want to be the gassy church, right? Like we want to be a church that is built up in love instead of just in information. And so as you hear this, I hope that it impacts your hearing and your understanding, but I also hope that as you hear truth that most of you probably already know, that it equips you to help others who are also asking similar questions. And so that you would know, thank you, Kelly, and thank you, team back there, for finding that. And so that you would know that you, too, can help others by finding answers in God's word, God's word to life's pressing questions. So today, we're talking about this question. What does it mean that God's word does not return void? What does it mean that God's word does not return void? So as we uh, get into the text today, let's take a moment and pray. Father, we thank you for this time to gather as a church family. We praise you because you are working in our midst. Lord, we want to be open to you completely, to your truth, to the move of your spirit, to your power and love, effectively working in our hearts. Father, our hope is the resurrected king who defeated death and the grave, who promises all those who believe in him everlasting life, and that he is sending his spirit into our lives. We thank you, God, for the sureness of that hope. We pray, Father, that you would build up our faith today as we hear your word, that you would help us to understand what it means that your word does not return back to you void. And we thank you, God, that you are unstoppable, that there's nothing in all of history that can resist your purposes. Thank you for what you're about to do in our midst, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we get into this text, we need to acknowledge something. And we, we talk about this occasionally, but we live in a world that is filled with lies. We live in a world that is filled with lies. It would be hard for you to count all the lies that you heard this week. Genuinely, it would be, because every product that you buy has promises, right? 
Every commercial that you see lays out potential possibilities and fantasies. Your own mind might be filled with deceptions at times, like, it's okay if I hit the snooze button again. I can start my day 10 minutes later. See, we even lie to ourselves. Beyond this, our leaders are not always very truthful with us, right? Right now in the Senate, they're having hearings about the existence of UFOs. The funny thing is that at one level, they're lying, right? Either there are or there aren't evidences of these things. And at some end, the government's been lying or will begin lying a whole lot really soon, right? Beyond that, we're in campaign season. And what are campaigns? Yeah, it's really lame, right? Why are these things, why are they boiled down to half-truths and empty promises? We know that someone is really, their word is only as re- really as good as they are. And so often we go through life with skepticism, mistrust, and disbelief of other people, and sometimes even of ourselves. And as we approach the Lord, we need to recognize that He is not this way at all. There is no twisting or turning with Him. That means He doesn't manipulate He doesn't change. Next week, he's not going to be a different God. He's not going to have a meaningful experience, see a beautiful sunrise, meet a beautiful other goddess, and fall in love and completely transform the way he exists in the world. He is consistent and the same and true all of the time. And so as we approach this text, we're going to be challenged to set aside the way we typically view the world so that our faith will grow. So, Here's the verse that we're studying. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I send it. Amen. So as we get into this, I want to talk a little bit about the Bible. God shares explicitly and abundantly about the nature of the scriptures and the blessings they offer. God shares explicitly He says it clearly. He speaks about the nature of the Bible and its effects in our lives in a way that is like a bell ringing. If you read about what God says about his word, he is very clear about how it can impact us and where it comes from and why he gives it to us. And specifically when I talk about his word in this instance, I'm talking about the scriptures. So when you, account, when you read somewhere in the Bible where it talks about according to the scriptures, like in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried according to the scriptures, that he rose from the dead according to the scriptures, what he's saying is according to the writings that we have, the very written word of God for us, this happened. So the scriptures means the writings, the writings. And when you read it in the New Testament, it says Uh, the grapha, grapha meaning writing. So that's like our root word for graphite. And so the scripture here that we're talking about is the writing. So let's look at what God says about his writings. In Psalm 1, 1 through 3, it says this, how happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does prospers. And so the Psalms kick off the whole book of Psalms with an introduction to the book and what it means to go through the Psalms. And it's talking about closeness with the Lord and living with the Lord as the source of your life, right? So that you become like a tree that is planted near 
the water. Okay, so some of us have lived in arid places where there's not much water. How do oak trees look in eastern Washington, eastern Oregon, perhaps in Wyoming or other arid places? Are they large, flourishing, strong trees? No, they're twisted and they're knurled and they're gnarled and they're, the leaves are few and scattered and the, the bark is thick and crusty because of how harsh the environment is there and the growth is slow and unsteady and they don't look like beautiful, majestic trees. They look weird. You can hardly identify them and understand that they're oak trees. But man, if you have seen an oak in a, a verdant plain, a fertile field, and, and it's near a stream, how does that oak tree look? Oh, it's majestic, and it's glorious, and its trunk is straight and smooth and massive, and it's strong, and there's shade underneath it, and its leaves are abundant, and it is incredibly fruitful over the course of its life because it has a constant source of life. God says his word can be like that to us. And as we live in his word, as our mind is there, as our heart is there, as we soak that in, we can understand his nature and his being and it nourishes us and it strengthens us and it makes our life fruitful. Amen? That's a good thing. Next, Psalm 19, 119, 24. Your decrees are my delight and my counselors. This is David saying, Lord, the writings that you've given me, the truth that you've poured out to me in your word, which by at that point in time was quite simply only the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. He's referring to this. He says, these things, they are delightful to me. They are wonderful to me. They are like a hot fudge sundae in the middle of July. They're like fresh strawberries picked in June. They're like shade on a hot day. I just crave them and seek after them, Lord. And not only are they delightful to me, they are my counselors. Your words to me are my guide. They show me the way of successful living. Wow, that's pretty awesome. That's this thing. That's this thing right here. Isn't that cool? That's, that's this to us. Wow. That's great. In Psalm 119, 28, David says, I'm weary from grief. Strengthen me through your word. So the word can strengthen us. We can come when we're grief-stricken and tired and we can open God's word and we can say, Lord, minister to me through your word. Strengthen me in my weakness. Comfort me in my grief. Strengthen me through your power and presence in my life. Isn't that awesome? There's sometimes where we're weary and we need to know God's nearness. And sometimes when we're weary and we need to know God's weariness, nearness, we can't see him and we can't sense him. In fact, this is part of the nature of grief, that the part of your mind that is involved in seeing and experiencing and knowing the Lord becomes shut down. And so you feel far from him, even though he's very near you. In fact, God explicitly states, I am near the brokenhearted. And so because God knows your nature and your weakness, he has made a way so that even when your brain can't sense him, you can go to a table that he has set before you and you can feast on delightful things and he can nourish your soul. That's this thing right here. That's this thing right here. Isn't that beautiful and powerful that God would prepare for you a place that he is willing to meet with you even when you yourself are too weary and lost to know how to meet with him? Isn't that good? 
That's part of the goodness of God, his written word for us. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. Wow, how many of us sang this song as a kid? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Right? We know this, right? And it's saying that, God, your word guides me in the darkness where I should go. It helps me understand where I am and what it's like right around me. And it also shows me your vision for my life so I'm not lost, so I'm not aimless, so that I have a direction and how I should go and who I should be in the midst of that. Have any of you ever been on a night hike before when your flashlight goes out? That's a scary place. You're stubbing your toes. It's not very good. I remember like the third time I played um, Capture the Flag as a Boy Scout. We were playing in this unfamiliar field to us. And Capture the Flag at night is a covert game. You've got a flashlight with you, but you only want to use it when you're trying to spot someone else. You do not want to use it when you're trying to infiltrate behind enemy lines. And so we're in this field of tall grass that's up to our waist, and we're crouching and we're crawling, and then we're getting up and sprinting and running, but we don't have lights on. And so I'm sprinting through the field, and all of a sudden, the lower half of my body encounters an immovable force, a tree that had fallen down on the ground and it whacks me just below my knees on my shins and I plump face planted on the other side of that tree and I was very unfindable for a little while as I regained my sense of everything beyond that pain that hurt in that moment I needed a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path spiritually this is God's word for us we need light in our spiritual darkness. We need light in our emotional darkness. We need light in our relational darkness. And God says, my word is that to you and more. Psalm 119, 165, abundant peace belong to those who love your instruction, your Torah, right? Those first five books, nothing makes them stumble. Wow. That's not because the book is magical. It's because the book exposes the God who is majestic to us. Think about what God's people learned in Genesis. Think about what God's people learned in Exodus. Think about how they saw his faithfulness, his mercy, his power, his love, his goodness. They learned about his unconditional promises. They understand his covenant towards them, the blessing that he is prepared to pour out on them. And so when you know this, do you know what you have in all times? abundant peace because you have seen people who have blown it far more than you have and God was still good to them and you've seen enemies defeated far greater than the ones that you're facing and they've been defeated by God's hands and so you do not fear but you have peace abundant peace belongs to those who love your instruction nothing makes them stumble just for clarity's sake God throws this in in 2 Timothy 3 16 and 17 all scripture is inspired by God, or your translation might say God breathed. It means God spirited. He spoke it through the writers of the scriptures, and it is profitable. The, cal the, the capitalists inside of us should say, hooray, profit, right? Let's be spiritual capitalists. Let's see God's riches grow in our lives for teaching, 
That means instructing us, for growing us up, for rebuking. That's our favorite term in the church, isn't it? I love it when somebody comes to me with a loving chastisement. For correcting, which means making crooked things straight, making weak things strong, and for training in righteousness, which is above all what we all need because spirituality is a team sport, and when you're playing a sport, you need to be trained to do it well, and that means practice, and that means working together, and that means listening to the coach, so we're trained in righteous living, so that the man of God, or the person of God, may be complete, whole, perfect, mature, equipped for every good work that God has called us to do, and God has called us to do good work, amen. And so if we're going to do that good work, we need to be built up in the word. It needs to correct us. It needs to rebuke us sometimes. It needs to train us. It needs to teach us so that we can be mature. That's this thing here. That's the Bible in your hands. It's why I love it when you bring it to church with you. I love it when I hear about you studying it on your own. I love it when I hear about you memorizing it. I love it when I hear about you singing it because in those times, I know that God is building you up. Isn't that good? It is. Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is living and effective or active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That verse says that while we want to be masterfully understanding this text, we are never its master. It is over us. It is able to separate us, our motivations, our thoughts, our actions. Have you ever been hanging out with somebody and they seem to be doing the right thing, but you're like, they don't seem to be doing this for the right reasons. They're giving or they're serving, but it doesn't seem to be about Jesus. It seems to be about them. It's not about Jesus' name being made greater. Their head seems to be getting bigger as they do this. They're delivering this word of truth, but it's not in love. It's out of frustration and anger and hurt, and I recognize the truth of it, and I'm gracious enough to receive it and to love them. The, the Word is able to show them that in their lives. The Word is even able to show us that in our lives. This is why it's often called a mirror, because it shows us what's going on inside of us. It's a measuring stick, and it helps us to see what's happening, and God has designed it to be that way, and it is like a gracious surgeon who's able to cut out the sick parts from us if we let it. In John 8, Jesus says this to the Jews who had believed in him. If you continue in my word, you are really my disciples. You're really people who will learn from me. And you will know the truth, and that truth will set you free. Jesus says his word, his teaching, are the path to freedom in our lives. Freedom from bondage to sin. Freedom from self-love freedom from confusion, freedom from doubt, freedom to grow and understand, freedom to know Jesus more and more. This is a beautiful thing, these sorts of freedoms. They're the freedoms that Jesus died to give you, but Jesus is clear that you need to grow into those freedoms. You don't know what they are automatically. You don't comprehend them, and so you don't appreciate them, and you don't walk in them. And so Jesus invites you to listen to him and to know his truth. This is why we look intently into the word of truth, so that we would know the freedom and power that the Lord has for us. In 1 Peter, Peter urges his churches to do this. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word, so that you may grow up into your salvation. Wow. 
That's really powerful. Anybody held an infant before that's hungry? Anybody fed an infant before that's hungry? What is going on? Man, that little guy, that little girl, hunting after the milk that nourishes. Nothing will satisfy them but that. I love that face on the way, and they're like, where's it at? Come on, show me the milk, right? They're just so excited for that. And that's what we're supposed to be like. I'm not trying to be graphic. This is God's word. He's trying to expose this heart of spiritual hunger that we are supposed to have so that when we find the truth that nourishes us, we latch on and we don't let go and we drink it down deeply. And when we burp, we're burping God's truth, right? And when we cry, it's because we're longing for more of God's truth. He wants that hunger in us. And then we see in Thessalonians what happens when we receive the truth. This is why we constantly thank God, because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God, which also effectively, uh, which also works effectively in you who believe. Did you catch that? There was a condition there. We thank God because when you receive the word through us, you did not receive it as a message from humans. You received it as a message from God. And because of that, it's also working effectively in you. That's a big deal. So what is the condition that makes God's work effectively in a human life? Receiving it. You have to receive it. That receiving can be synonymous or harmonious with the word believing it. You're trusting in it. You're recognizing it for what it is, and so you're treasuring it, and you're placing it as an important thing in your life. It's a foundational understanding that you live with, that you walk by, that you reference. It becomes your way of being and thinking over time. It becomes, quite frankly, the way that we learn to hear God's voice because often we have thoughts and we hear things that are intrusive that are not harmonious with this word and we know therefore that it's not from the Lord and so as we eliminate those voices as we eliminate those urges more and more we learn to listen to the Holy Spirit who wrote these words to guide us to know him more and more and it's conditional upon your receiving something that is conditional upon receiving means that sometimes it returns fruitless did you catch that? Sometimes this word is fruitless in people's lives. This is why there are brilliant minds who can explain what the Bible means better than I can, and they know not the Lord, and they love not the Lord, because they have not received it in faith. They have not trusted in it. So this word, this word right here, this word that many of you carried in, this word that many of you study each day, this word that many of you memorize and are thankful for, this word is powerful and effective in those who receive it from God. Amen. That is a good thing. But here's the thing. Isaiah 55, 11 is not about this. This is not what Isaiah 55, 11 is about. Isn't that strange? Isn't it funny that God uses the same words that mean different things sometimes? And so when he says, my word will not return void in Isaiah 55, he's not talking about this word. He's not talking about the Bible. Does that make the Bible less than what it is? No. It means that he has something more for us. And that is a good thing, right? 
Can you imagine if your love for pizza was the same as your love for your spouse? And if somebody heard you say you love pizza and you love your spouse, they thought you loved it in the same way? Aren't you glad that there's more than this basic love of pizza in your life? That you can love your spouse and that beyond that you can love the Lord more than that? That when you say love, it can mean lots of different things? The same thing is true of the Lord. And when he says his word, it can mean multiple things. And in this instance, God's word is about what he's speaking in that moment, what he's saying through the prophet Isaiah. It's about the promises that he has for Israel. It's about the covenant that he's going to make with them. He is stretching and growing their faith through what he is saying. So let's talk about what it means that God's word will not return to him void. Remember, this is a hymn statement. My word will not return void to me. This is not about us. This is about him. It's about what he is going to do. It's like you saying to the, to the person who sent you to the grocery store, I will get the things that you have sent me for to the grocery store. God's word is going to a spiritual store and is going to accomplish spiritual things and it is going to return those things back to him. So how are we going to understand what this means? What happens when we, we take the text out of the context? We get a con, and so we're going to study the context so that we can understand God's word more. So Isaiah 55, starting in verse 1. Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water, you without silver, come by and eat. Wow. This sounds a lot like Revelation. Doesn't Jesus say this to one of the churches in Revelation? You think you are spiritually rich, but you are poor and you are naked and you are blind. And come to me and buy salve for your eyes. Come buy white clothes to cover your nakedness. Come buy food and drink that will nourish you spiritually. Come and buy without cost. Isn't that awesome? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's an invitation to draw near. Come buy wine and milk and silver and without cost and without cost isn't this wild and crazy what did it cost israel to draw near to god what did they have to do to know their maker and their redeemer what did the law say they needed to do when they sinned sacrifice sacrifice was that like an easy sacrifice? Was it like going to the ATM? You put your spiritual debit card in and you punch in your pin and then there's like a, a, a key of sins that you could commit and you can work through the channel and then it's like, you owe this and you just put it in the ATM machine and then it gives you a receipt and it says like, you are atoned for, your sin is atoned for. No, it was like hardcore. You had to raise up an animal and you had to bring it to the priest and then, and then you had to confess your sins to the priest and then you had to put your hand on the animal and it was like your sin was being transferred to it and while your hand is on this animal that you raised up, the priest slits its throat and blood goes everywhere and it covers your feet and it's an animal dying for you and you are aware that death has passed over you. It is costly. Once a year, the Israelites got together on the Day of Atonement and one lamb was slaughtered for slaughtered for all the people's sin and the priest he would take a, a hyssop brush a, a bush and he would dip it in the blood and he would spatter the people with that that sounds like a church service we all want to have next sunday right the service of the blood we'll just spray it all over everybody it'll be great right like this is graphic and this is serious and it is costly and there's other offerings and there's other sacrifices that have to meet and you have to travel to jerusalem to do this and you need to do this every time you sin every time you sin and now god is saying that access to him will be without cost 
Wow, that is a major promise. That feels like a major shift in grace and redemption to Israel. This is a big deal. The Lord continues, Why do you spend silver on what is not food and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good, my word, amen, and you will enjoy the choicest of foods. Pay attention and come to me. Listen so that you will live. He is offering redemption and life through faith in him. I will make a permanent covenant with you on the basis of the faithful kindness of David, or probably better translated as shown to David. Since I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples, so you will summon a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you will run to you, for the Lord is your God. Even the Holy One of Israel has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. Let the wicked one abandon his ways and the sinful one his thoughts. Let, the, let him return to the Lord so he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he f- will freely forgive. Wow, these are big promises. If you know the book of Isaiah, you understand that Isaiah was promising coming judgment. And over the course of his ministry, Israel was being dismantled because of their unfaithfulness to God. And there was prophecy that Jerusalem would be destroyed and all Israel would be lost. And when that happened, Israel thought that it was game over. But God was saying, no, game just getting started because your failure is the beginning of my redemption in your life. Your weakness is the beginning of my strength for you. Your poverty is the very place that I'm going to pour my riches out on you. And Israel was having a hard time believing this. They were having a hard time trusting that God was going to let them back in even though they were wicked and rebellious and unfaithful to him. They believed that God was going to give back to them what they deserved over and over again. But that's not what mercy is. They did not understand mercy. And so when God says this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, Your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. He's saying, I'm not like you. I don't think like you. I don't act like you. I am not who you are, and your misunderstanding of me does not make me any different than I am. I am always the same. For as heaven is higher than earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. My thoughts higher than your thoughts. This is God humbly but lovingly and powerfully saying, I'm better than you. I'm so much better than you that you can't possibly comprehend and understand this. Now, what's funny is when people say this, it's a moment of pride and putting someone else down. Not at all with the Lord. He's not trying to put us down by pointing that out. He's trying to say, believe that I'm greater. Believe that I'm higher. Know that I'm different than anything else that you can come upon. I am holy. I am separate. Then he says this, For just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish and please and pro- what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. 
Okay, so this is fantastic. Anybody learn about the water cycle in grade school? So the, the rain accumulates up in the clouds, right? All those clouds, they're moisture droplets. And then eventually those moisture droplets, they combine into bigger moisture droplets and they can no longer be suspended in the air. So what do they do then? They fall to the earth. This is rain. And then it falls on the earth and it saturates the ground and it goes up into the plants, but then somehow there's still moisture left over. So then what happens to that moisture that's on the ground? It evaporates. It goes back up into the heavens again and returns from where it came. It comes down and it grows and it accomplishes a purpose. The snow does the same thing, right? In fact, this year it was a really big deal because record snowfall happened in the mountains across the west coast, which what did that mean for all of the watersheds and the reservoirs that were there? They were refilled. And what is that promise that refilling them means? Does it mean more boating on Lake Tahoe? Is that why everybody rejoiced that there was more water this year? No, it means life. It means growth. It means transformation. God is saying that the promise I'm giving you is going to come down and it's going to bring life and it's going to bring growth and it's going to bring guaranteed transformation and then it's going to return back to me having done what I promised that it would accomplish, what I intended for it to do. That's awesome. And then he promises the end of that. He says, you will indeed go out with joy and be peacefully guided. The mountains and the hills will break into singing before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of a thorn bush, a cypress will come up, and instead of the briar, a myrtle will come up. This will stand as a monument for the Lord, an everlasting sign that will not be destroyed. Wow. This is a promise given to God's people, the Israelites, the Jews. How many centuries have the Jews been persecuted for? How long has their name been hated? A whisper, a byword. Since the destruction of Jerusalem. Since the destruction of Jerusalem. For millennia, the Jews have been cast down, struck down. They've been hated. They've been cursed. Did you catch what God just said to them? You will indeed go out with joy and will be peacefully guided were they peacefully guided into train cars in Germany? No. Are they peacefully surrounded in the Middle East right now? They don't, they have the wall of tissue to welcome those who come with tears of joy, right? No, they have the iron, what is that thing they call? They've got like their dome of missile control where they keep enemies out that could potentially come. They're constantly under threat. And he says, the mountains and the hills will break into singing before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Even the earth will rejoice in the presence of God's children, the Israelites, when this prophecy is fully fulfilled. Instead of the thorn bush, instead of sin, a cypress will come up. God's strength will come up. Instead of the briar, a myrtle will come up. And this will be a monument for the Lord, an everlasting sign that will not be destroyed. So what does it mean that God's word will not return void? God always accomplishes what he sets out to accomplish. God always accomplishes what he sets out to accomplish. When God says in Philippians 1.6 that he will be faithful to complete the work he began in you, even if it takes him until the day that Jesus returns, he means it. He will be faithful to complete his work in you. He will not quit on you. 
He will not let you go. He will not give up on you. He will not become discouraged or dismayed over you. He will be faithful to you. He means that. You can trust in that every day of your life and then some. But specifically, God promised to send his Holy One to bring about an everlasting covenant. Wait, wait, wait. I got lost. Sorry, guys. We're going to go back. What God says is trustworthy because God is trustworthy. What God says is trustworthy because He is trustworthy. We're only, our word is only as good as we are. God is perfectly good. His word is always worth trusting in. This matters for us. What would it mean to you if you couldn't trust in the Lord? What would it mean to you? It would mean a lot. You know, functionally though, many of us don't trust in the Lord. I've met so many of my brothers and sisters in Christ. They have a closet full of skeletons. They have secrets that they keep inside that are keeping them spiritually sick and sometimes relationally and emotionally sick. They hear about God's mercy and grace. They hear about his goodness and healing power and they're just not sure enough about it to really invite him into their deepest, most difficult places in their lives. See, we know God is trustworthy, but sometimes we don't put full faith in his trustworthy nature. In this passage, God specifically promises to send his Holy One, Jesus, to bring about an everlasting covenant. Did you catch that? That's what's happening here. I am replacing the old covenant that you had, where you had to be atoned for, for each sin, where you had to sacrifice. Instead, you're going to come to me, and you're going to receive free forgiveness. Is it that forgiveness was free all, all around? No, it's that somebody else paid. God is promising that somebody else will pay. He's promising to send the Savior. He's promising to send the Messiah. He's saying this is a sure and guaranteed thing to send Jesus to accomplish this. So let me ask you this. Did God send a Savior? Yes, he did. Did the Savior do what he sent him to do? Yes. Did Jesus say that that's what he was doing while he was on this earth? Yes. He said, I am not here according to my own will. I'm here according to the will of him who sent me. And he sent me to do this, to save all who believe in me. And all who believe in me receive everlasting life. And I will not lose any of them because this is the will of him who sent me. He's referring back to Isaiah 55 when he's talking about that. Did you know that? Did you know that God promised eight centuries before Jesus' birth that Jesus was coming and would do what he promised to do? Well, he did. And so Jesus came. And this is proof of his trustworthiness. Amen? But then in Isaiah 55, 11, God promises that one day the curse of sin will be removed from the earth. Is the curse of sin removed from the earth yet? No. I still have blackberries in my yard that are disobedient. There are thorns on them. I poison them. They refuse to die. I cut them back. They return. They are disobedient and sinful berries. And one day they will grow when I want them to, where I want them to. And they will not hurt me when I step on them. They will delight me when I eat at them only. There is sin in the earth still. God promises that he will remove it one day. Will he do it? Yes. God says there's sin in your life still. And that he wants to perfect you and transform you and make you complete in Jesus. Can he do that? Will he do that? Yes. Jesus sees you 
and understands your predicaments. Why do you spend your silver on things that can't feed you, on water that won't nourish you? Why are you wasting the fruit of your life on things that can't satisfy you? Why, why are you spending 12 bucks a month on Netflix instead of sponsoring a kid who doesn't have food in Africa? Why is it there is, is a smooth groove in your lazy boy, but not in your word that sits right next to it? Why is it that there are ministries in the churches without enough volunteers? Why there are ministries unfunded while our IRAs are given to another generation? Honestly, I have to ask myself these same questions. Do I really trust in God's promises fully? I'm not trying to beat things into you. I'm just being honest the questions that I ask myself because I know that God wants to transform me and sometimes I resist him. And so I find myself in these painful predicaments, but I have to know that God sees and understands them. And when I recognize that, I have to trust in his mercy. And that's what verse six and seven are about. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while, we, while he is near. Let, let the wicked one, that's me, that's you, abandon his way and let the sinful one abandon his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord so that the Lord may have compassion on him. For God will freely forgive. That's the promise of mercy. Do you have sin today that you need to bring before the Lord? Do you have something that you need to talk to the Lord about and say, Lord, I have this thought pattern that's unwise, unhealthy, and unholy, and I've been running my mind around it over and over again, and I need your forgiveness. Have you been rebellious and wandering away from him? Well, he's near. He can be found. And he's saying, come and find forgiveness, abundant forgiveness, over and over again as you pursue me and approach me. Trust in his mercy. Next, trust his past examples. In, in verse 3, he talks about David. He talks about the covenant that he's going to make. When it says the faithfulness of David, it's talking about his faithfulness to David. Was David perfectly faithful? No, he seemed to start so well. Remember what he did at the start? He killed a giant by faith with just a stone. Let's be clear, it was God who killed that giant, but David was activating that grace through faith. But then a little while later, as a successful king, instead of going out to battle, what did he do? He stayed back home, and he knew where Bathsheba lived. He knew when Bathsheba bathed. He's a guy, right? <laughs> He's just a guy. He willfully made that choice. He willfully was unfaithful to God. But was God faithful to him anyways? God was merciful to him. God is saying, just like I made an everlasting covenant with David, who was unfaithful, I will be faithful to you who have been unfaithful. Is David our only past example of God's faithfulness? No. What's the biggest example of God's faithfulness to us? Jesus. He's the king that we look to for an example of God's faithfulness. When we're worried that our sin is greater than God's grace, all we have to do is look at Jesus. When we're worried that the place that we are is a place that God can't save us from, all we have to do is look at Jesus being saved from the dead. That's the very thing Paul says to the church at Ephesus, Ephesus that he prays that they would know the power of the resurrection, that power is at work in them. We need to understand that God's grace is always greater. God's power is always sufficient. That's why Jesus becomes such a strong example for us. Next, we need to trust that he will satisfy. In verse 
before, think about how David felt before the people. His sin was before the people. You remember what happened to the son that was born because of that affair? The son died. Did, was this secret? No, all of Israel knew, right? All of Israel knew. In fact, multiple times, David's sin cost the whole nation in human lives. And yet David found satisfaction in the Lord. David writes in the Psalms, taste and see that the Lord is good. It says, in his right hand are pleasures forever in David's writings. He learned that God satisfied him. You know, often our human wandering is based on our lack of satisfaction. Our human wandering happens because in our hearts, we don't know the satisfaction that God desires for us. And so we seek satisfaction elsewhere. This is the nature of all sin and all idolatry. It's turning to something besides God to meet the deepest needs in our hearts and even the short-term needs in our hearts. It's not standing firm in our faith long enough to let God come in and satisfy us in the things that we are looking for. And so we need to trust that God will satisfy us. And then finally at the end, God says, trust in my promises. Just like rain and snow fall from heavens and water the earth and bring forth fruit, so my word that I send to the earth will not return void unto me. God is faithful to his word. He sent Jesus to save you. He's saying, trust in my promises. I'm different than anything and anyone that you will ever meet. And you need to know that I am completely and perfectly trustworthy. And so you can trust in my promises. So where does that leave us? That leaves us in this place where we can trust God where we can lean into God's mercy and grace in our lives. This is why the author of Hebrews says, therefore, because we have such a faithful and perfect high priest, let us boldly approach the throne of grace so that we can find the very thing that we need in our time of need. God is true to his word. He will in no way cast you out once you put your faith in Jesus. He says, you are my son. You are my daughter. You are always welcome. I pleasure in you. I delight in you. I rejoice over you with singing. The plans that I have for you are greater than you can understand. My goodness is superior to every need that you will ever have. So trust in me. And that leaves us in a, person, a place of leaning into mercy and grace. Have you ever had a friend take you out to dinner and you know your friend can buy you anything on the menu and more and you're looking at the menu and you're thinking, I don't want to seem greedy. What do I buy? Now they've got that $75 filet mignon and they have a $22 burger. I don't want to seem greedy for that filet or that burger. So then you settle on grilled chicken. It's always that way, isn't it? You're finding something in the middle. God doesn't want you to order grilled chicken. God doesn't want you to be confused. He's laid his menu before you. He's presenting you an offer of life. He's saying, my grace wasn't cheap, but I want you to enjoy it. I want to lavish it on you through the beloved one, Jesus Christ. So lean into everything I have for you. Be greedy for more of me. Be zealous for my spirit. Enjoy the gifts that I pour out on you. Spend the grace I give you lavishly and abundantly on others. 
Be people who are defined by mercy. Be people who are generously faithful. Be people who lean into me with everything that you have, and I will never let you down. But you know what happens? We allow the conservative part of our version of Christianity to say that God's grace is conservative. That his promises are abundant, but let's not use them up. His mercy is there, but, you know, he doesn't really like giving it out that often. So act up in a church way. Put on a good face and show everybody that you're fine. No, brothers and sisters, lean in, hold on to, grab a hold of, trust in him. Don't worry about the rest because he has you covered. God literally wants you to presume upon his grace. He does. Think about the apostles. Jesus left them and he said, it's better that I give you the spirit because greater things are going to be accomplished in you and through you. And so then it's after the day of Pentecost. The message has been given. They're going into the temple again, Peter and John. And there's a blind man there who's begging for money. God's grace did not give them money that day. And so they decided, we don't have to worry about it. They just walked right on by him. No, they presumed upon the grace of God and they looked at that beggar sitting there who could not walk and they said, silver and gold have we not, but rise and stand in the power of Christ. Do you think they were nervous when that was happening? I mean, when I place myself in that story, my heart is no longer here. It's somewhere between here and here. You know, like it's that moment where you're like, okay, God said we were gonna do this, but are we really gonna do this? And the answer is yes. And that's the answer that God wants for us from this passage. He's saying, my promises are always true. When I gave you a gift, I called you to use it. When I gave you mercy, I I called you to lean on it. When I give you grace, I want you to spend it lavishly. I give to you generously so that you can live generously as my son did in this life. So church family, when God says his word does not return void, let's let his word rest in us fully so that it has a full fruit in our lives, so that we will be spiritually fruitful like Jesus is. Let's live in his grace. Let's lean on his mercy, and let's move forward in love. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for all the questions that we've looked at during this time. Thank you that you have so faithfully led us and taught us in this season. Lord, quite frankly, I think that we could learn more about your grace and your mercy and love. And so I pray that you will never stop teaching and leading us to know you more. I ask, Father, that you would help us to understand the abundance of your grace that has been poured out on us, that the power of the resurrection lives within us, that your spirit has not only sealed us but equipped us for ministry. Help us, Father, to presume upon that grace because we want to presume upon you. You say to trust in us, but too often, God, we're afraid to trust. And so grow our faith. Help us to know that your word will not return void. Father, there are people in this room who need to do some business with you in the last song. You have convicted them today as soon as I got to that passage about sin and about mercy and returning. Father, I pray that you would help them to return to you in this time. That even if they don't sing the words of the song, that they would be reconnecting with you and offering you their hearts again and inviting you into their minds again. And Father, there's, there's those of us who have become stingy with grace. We've been slow to give mercy. Help us, Father, to give mercy abundantly as you have given mercy. Help us to be generous towards others in the ways that you have been generous towards us. 
Father, we want to be a people who reflect your heart and mission on this earth. And we thank you, Lord, that your spirit transforms us and empowers us and equips us. It's in your son's name that we pray and rejoice. Amen.